Well, it's good to see you too. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I always, you always have a way you want to start with a sermon, you know, and you know the first words you're going to say, and usually that's exactly how you start. But Jesus paid it all. Those aren't just words. Are they just words to you? All to him I owe. Every ounce, every breath. And I hope that somewhere along the way in today's chapel, you breathe that in, in a new way that isn't just, hey, look, it's another Monday. We're in chapel again, and we're singing about Jesus. And if the words of that song don't strike every string in the guitar of your soul, I pray that maybe sometime in today's chapel, you might discover what that feels like, even if it's for the first time. But the truth is, Only God could do that. That's why those words mean those things. Well, now for how I meant to start the sermon. All of us long to be admired by those we are closest to. I think that's such a simple statement that it's almost what you would call in academic geeky places a tautology. Something that's so true, why did you even need to say it? But I, I do think it's true. You may not think it yet, but all of us long to be admired by those we are closest to. That may live at the subterranean level, but it shows itself in the surface in who we relate to, how we relate to them, what we pursue, why we pursue it, what we try to achieve, what we hope for, when we achieve it, who we look to when we're trying to figure out how well we're doing. All of us long to be admired by those we're closest to and to some degree long to be admired by those we admire. If you don't believe me yet, just imagine that you went for a cup of coffee or, uh, well, I suppose we do a lot of coffee shaming here around in Indiana Wesleyan, so, or cocoa, if you're not into the whole coffee thing. Uh, you go for a cup of coffee or cocoa with a friend, and the friend starts out your conversation with, I'm sorry, but, you know, I just need to tell you something. I don't admire you. I can't admire you. There isn't any part of your life that I can look up to. I just cannot respect you at all. 
Not only would that be a shocking start to a conversation, you'd start to wonder if this person really was your friend ever in the first place, but it might be one of the most fruitful conversations you'll have all year if you listen carefully. But I'll tell you this, if you don't walk out of that conversation with some kind of internal psychological pain, something's wrong with you. We all long to be admired by those closest to us and by those whom we admire. There's two buckets of types of people that we admire. At least most people that we admire fall primarily into one of these two or both. The first bucket is productive people. We really admire people who are incredibly productive. They do a lot of stuff that matters. Not like, you know, the world's Guinness Book of Records for sharpening pencils in a week or something like that. No, not that and not the, what are the silly flop of the water bottle thing that you do on YouTube, like, look at that, I landed it on top of the fridge, wow, we admire, no, we don't admire that, they could do a thousand of those and we wouldn't admire you, you do something that we all would say matters in the world and you're productive in it, those are the people we, we write long paragraphs about, we give trophies to, we, we make awkward bronze statues of their faces. Productive people. And then the other category is joyful people. Now, productive people, you look at you go, wow, how do they do all that? What? But joyful people, when they walk into the room, they bring more oxygen with them. And you realize all of a sudden, wait a second, you know what? I didn't realize I was a little low on oxygen, but I was. And watch the room. People who were slumped, eyes that were down, heads that were leaning, start to straighten up, eyes light up, people start laughing, conflict diminishes. You can even watch skin tone physically change when this person starts working their magic in a room. Joyful people. Do you know people like those two kinds of people? Here's what's most rare. A person who is joyfully productive all the time. Someone who isn't just pursuing productivity for productivity's sake, getting a lot of things done, but they're not exactly the happiest person in the world. And over here, somebody who isn't just pursuing joy for joy's sake, they're also productive. I mean, of course we want to avoid the, the human dementors, you know. <laughs> and nobody really wants to spend a lot of time with a waste of space. And that's how we talk about it when we're honest. But the most admired people among us are those who somehow have both of those magically together. Which is what John chapter 15 is all about. A joyfully productive life. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. I would just challenge you to bring a paper Bible to chapel on Mondays. We do call it Bible Mondays, not as though Wednesdays and Fridays aren't. But this is our expositional series through the book of John. So you know we're going to use the thing. And if you want to have weight, save weight in your backpack, get one of those cheap little New Testament tiny little deals. You can stick it in your pocket. Because here's what I've noticed. If you have your phone out, 99% of you are not looking at the Bible. 
Can I get an amen from the very back darkened cave where the troglodytes dwell? <laughs> so if you have that out right now, just get out of your Instagram, get out of that little video game, put away your nursing test or your science test, whatever, and, and turn on the Bible, at least, okay? John chapter 15. It's all about a productive life. Let me give you the overarching structure because, to be honest, there's not enough time for me to deal with the entire chapter. The overarching structure is two halves. The first half is about a fruitful vine and its community of loving branches. That's the first half. The second half, if you glance down or swipe down all the way to about verse 18, starts focusing on the resisting world. Think of it as the hot environment in which the vineyard is growing. I'm going to focus mostly on the first half, and if God is willing and we get there, touch briefly on the second half. The first half starts in John chapter 15, verse 1. Look there right now. Yeah, see? Look down there. John chapter 15, verse 1. Look there. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. This is Jesus speaking. Now, remember, in John, the book of John, you hear these repeated I am statements. Ego a me in the Greek. It's it's an emphatic statement of I. I, I am the true vine, Jesus says. He doesn't have to add that extra pronoun, but he does. He wants to emphasize that that is who he is. And it's a, a statement of the divine name. It's talking about his divinity, but it's also giving specific character, concrete, tangible character to what you could sometimes think of as amorphous majesty. The great I am, the great I am, the great I am. Let's sing it again, the great I am. You know, that kind of thing, where you have that big emotional experience, but you don't know what it was about. Like, well, I'm crying, I don't know why. But he puts specific, concrete content each time he says, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as Dr. Skank talked to us about a couple weeks ago. And this one, I am the vine, is to me one of the most central passages in the New Testament of the good news of what it means to be Christian. But it starts out with an implication. I am the, what's the next word? Say it again. Okay, those of you who don't have your Bible but now heard somebody else say it, say it. True. I am the true vine. The the, um, assumption is that there are false vines. So number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Write this down. Do not attach yourself to a false vine. That's easy. Now what does that mean? But do not attach yourself to a false vine. Now, Wild vines that are sort of grape-like grow all over the ancient Middle East. There are two different types. One is wild in that it's never really tended, and people don't cultivate it. It's not extremely fruitful, and you wouldn't make uh, welches out of it because uh, it's just kind of bitter. It's a wild and bitter grapevine. Think about that productive person again. If you, produce, if you uh, pursue productivity for productivity's sake, you want to be somebody who achieves something, and you pursue it for its own sake, often you will try to prove yourself. You will try to achieve. You will try to accomplish. And you might become the kind of person who says, I'm going to do it my stinking way. Often that ends up in a very bitter result. If not for you, 
for the people around you. And then there's the poisonous vine that grows. The poisonous vine is an imitation vine. It produces grapes too, but they look a little more attractive, but they're actually poisonous to you. They would make you sick, and if you eat too much, they'll kill you. Think about the person who pursues pleasure and joy for pleasure and joy's sake. Neurologists tell us that the function of the brain with addiction is that you do one of three things or all three with pleasure. You want pleasure to happen more often, to last longer, and to be more intense. When you start looking for any particular pleasure in your life to happen more often than it naturally does, to last longer than it naturally would, to be more intense than it naturally is on its own, you are on the road to addiction every time. Whether that's something as obvious as drug addiction or alcoholism or something more subtle like Netflix binging. To meddle a little bit. Poker. All of those are addictive behaviors that then begin to draw you away from your fruitfulness in life. And if you follow them completely, sexuality or anything else, it will eventually become a self-destructing addictive pattern. You need more, you need it more often, you need it more intense, you need more, you need it more often, you need it more intensely. Until it poisons your life. If you are trying to find life in what you can achieve, if you are trying to find life in the pleasure that you can find, you will end up dying, empty, meaningless, discouraged. You will be facing the void with nothing to show for it. Trust me. Don't attach yourself to a false vine. Attach yourself to Christ. We'll come back to that in a minute. Second, though, the passage moves on to talk about another character, not God the Son, God the Father. I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Now, I changed the translation for most of you if you're reading it because I I think the New King James gets it right. The verb iro really means to take or lift or raise. It only means to take away. If you add a a preposition, away or from, there's no apo here in the Greek. There's no preposition there everywhere else where there's not that preposition that means to take to yourself, to hold up, to raise. There are several translations that I think get more at the meaning of the gracious father gardener. He's not the Egyptian Pharaoh who is saying, make more bricks or I'm going to beat you to death. That's how I've often heard this preached. Become fruitful or I'm going to cut you off. That's not the God I know. If you are actually truly in Christ and you're not producing fruit, you're a young sprout, you're an immature branch, you're a weakened part of the vine, he comes up and undergirds you, wraps you again around the vine itself or a piece of the trellis or interconnects you with other branches to give you strength. That's a gracious gardener. And if that's where you are right now, and this is really just a greenhouse for you, don't hear this sermon as a condemnation. Well, I'm not fruitful. (laughs) That's fine. Grow. Here. Stay connected to Christ. Here. And you will produce fruit. But that's a side note. The real point of this little section, I think, of the passage is the pruning. The Father takes those fruitful branches, which I hope you are, and cuts them. (laughs) 
here's two different kinds of instruments of death to plants. Um, this is just a little set of hand shears. And when I go around in my garden looking to prune things back, whether it's a food-producing plant or just a decorative bush, often I can just do this because if I get to it soon enough, this is a piece of cake. Snip, 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 snip around the edges. But if I've let it go too long, and it's grown, and it's strengthened, and it's widened and broadened, and then i got to get something more like this. And it does more violence to the plant for its own good. What am I saying? This is where metaphors often break down, right? You know, it's a metaphor, the vine, the branches thing. You actually can resist the Father and he'll let you. There are good and productive areas of your life that he wants to prune as they get started, saying, that's a good thing, someone else can do that. That's a beautiful thing, that's not my calling for you. That's a productive area, that's wonderful, doesn't mean you have to do it. And if you let him, those relationships and practices and habits and things that you're doing that aren't evil and in and of themselves, but would distract you from where he really wants you to grow, he'll dip, 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 he'll be doing it all the time, just a happy little snipping father. But if you resist with tears, and it will hurt. Some of you have good things in your life that God wants to cut, and you're not letting them. And you'll probably hear somebody else tell you how important they are. You'll probably hear somebody else tell you how it's fruitful in your life, that you're good at it. That doesn't mean, just because you're good at it, that you have to do it. You might be good at seven different things. Are you supposed to do all seven all the time? It's humanly impossible. Let him prune you of things that are good so that you can produce more fruit, the passage says. Fruit that will last. In a way, this is getting at it from the negative. Do you notice? Don't attach yourself to, to the false vine. Uh, let God cut things away. Are you hearing the negative side? Now listen to the next part as we read. Just look down at your Bible and read along with me in whatever version you're reading. It goes on, it says, um, let's see, you, verse 3, are already clean, pruned, because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, he's speaking to his disciples. He's already cut things away from their lives. They've thrown away fishnets and tax collecting, and they've thrown away even selfish ambition to some degree. Shall I sit on your left or right hand, Jesus? I'll cut, cut, cut. Right? They've been being pruned all along. You may not be in the same place that they are, but keep reading. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, he says again. You are just branches. You're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will. Promise. Promise of God. Covenant with you. He will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. 
it'll be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, do you? You don't even have to pull up BibleHub.com and look at the Greek to figure out if it's remain, 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 stay. Now, if you did pull up Bible Hub and you hovered over it and looked up the Greek word meno and you found out, you would find out it means remain or stay, abide or dwell. There's a, a living sense to it, right? And it is the primary message in the good news John 15 wants to get to you. And I have no idea how to get it to you or to fully describe it. But it is the greatest treasure of my life. So I'll try. Some of us live in Grant County. Uh, I do. We built our house here, so financial people tell us our primary investment is here. Uh, I, I work here, and sometimes I walk to work, sometimes I drive the mile to work, and wonder why I'm driving a mile to work, but I live here. When I get groceries, I get it here in Grant County. When I go to church, I go to church in Grant County. When I say I'm going home, I mean my house in Grant County. Some of us live here. If you throw a dart at the calendar of our lives, you'll probably hit a Grant County moment. Now, the point isn't Grant County, right? This is a metaphor, an illustration. Stay with me. Some of us are only visiting. A few of you have tags on today. Welcome, so glad you're here. Many of you students, it's your parents, right? They come once, twice, three times a year. Maybe they come in, they come out, they see a little bit. You say, oh, let's go over to the steakhouse. That's a nice part of town. And then they go. That's not wrong, right? This is a metaphor. But they just visit. If you throw a dart at the wall of their lives, you probably won't hit a Grant County moment. Most of us here live somewhere in the middle. Students, if you're here, then you often eat here, you often sleep here, you go to school here, that is your job, you may have a job here, you may be here nine months out of the year, but then you go somewhere else. But if you were to say, I'm going home for the weekend, you don't mean the dorm, you don't mean the townhouse. You probably don't even mean the little apartment off campus that you waited so long to get and then found out that it had mold in the crawl space and you're so discouraged that there's mold and you wish that they would fix that, but they're not fixing it. And then you realize, oh, wait, old houses aren't quite as good as Indiana West and why do they, right? You don't even mean that space. Home is still somewhere else. You're kind of in between worlds. Here's the third thing this passage, I think, is saying to us. Live in. Live in. Don't just visit the love of Christ. Live in. Live in. Mm. Don't just visit the love of Christ. You are visiting the love of Christ when you say, boy, I went to church and boy, you know, I felt God there. When you show up to scripture every now and then and God speaks to you there. Is that wrong? No. Is that where you start? Everybody starts there. <laughs> the disciples started there. You live in the love of Christ when moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour of every day, 
You are almost always attentive to, aware of, open to, submitted to, appreciative of the love of Christ flowing up within you. That you don't have just moments of prayer where you visit talking to God. You are almost always at some level or another in communion trying to stay open to, listen to, respond to. Live in the love of Christ. Have you experienced the love of Christ within you? I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm not even asking if you're a disciple trying to live like Christ. This is another thing. Have you experienced the love of Christ in an indwelling, ongoing, minute by minute, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day way, so that if I threw a dart at the calendar of your life, I would probably hit an enjoying Christ moment. I could throw a hundred darts at the wall and maybe one would hit a moment where you were distracted, forgot, and it took a while for you to return. Are you dwelling in the love of Jesus Christ? It is the only, 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 only reliable source of a continually, joyfully productive life with fruit that will last for eternity. It is the only one. Don't do stuff for Jesus and burn yourself out. Live in his love and you will do things for Jesus out of love with joy and not burn out. Don't be surprised how quickly you will shrivel and dry up the moment you stop dwelling in, remaining in Christ. I don't care if you're a pastor or a preacher or the president or the dean of the chapel or the dean of the chapel's wife, love you so much, or if you're my wife or if you're your dad or mom or if you are you yourself, if you pull yourself away from Christ, you will shrivel and dry up. but I don't know how to explain it to you in a way that gives it to you. I think only God can. There is an inner conduit in your soul, a, a valve only you can open. And the more it stays open, the more the love of God and the love of Christ through his words, through his commands, through his presence, through his people. The next part of the passage talks about loving one another and the intersecting, interweaving, loving branches in the kingdom of God. The more that will fill and strengthen you and the more fruit you will naturally produce and the more God will therefore have to prune you so that you don't break under the weight of your own productivity. But please, open the valve. And whenever he reminds you of it, don't feel guilty and think, oh Lord, I'm such a bad Christian. I am only visiting you. No. Be grateful. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me back to you. Help me stay longer. I want to live here. Always. And that is, that is eternal life. John goes on to warn us that if you live a joyfully productive life, the world will hate you. So be ready for that. 
and the Spirit will guide you in how to speak about that. That's the rest of the chapter that we don't have time for. There you go, quick summary. But as I prayed for you today, this was I really what I felt God wanted you to not miss. Are you living in the love of Christ? Would you stand with me? To bow your heads and focus yourself on the presence of God who is here right now. Sometimes even in preaching, we can forget that. Even in worship, we can be attentive to something else. Tune into him. Open the valve right now. If you would say to the Lord, not to me, to the Lord. You're just with the Lord now. Close your eyes. I see seven or eight eyes, which shouldn't be an odd number, but, you know, somebody, somebody's kind of staring funny. Just close your eyes, bow your heads. If you would say, Lord, I have not been living in your love. Maybe you haven't even been visiting. Maybe you are in that in-between space. Maybe you used to dwell there, but you don't anymore. Wherever you are, maybe you're a poisonous vine for a little while you've been attached to. Maybe you've been producing bitter fruit and bitterness has crept up in your life or others around you. I don't know. You could be in that whole spectrum. I don't know where. But if you would say, Lord, I have not been dwelling in, living in, soaking in, enjoying, growing in your love like I want to. All I'm asking you to do now is a sign to God that you're admitting it is to just hold out your hands about waist high. You're not announcing it to the world. Hands turned up as a way of trying to receive from him. And I want to pray with you and for you. Let the Spirit speak to you. Are you honestly, truly living in the love of Jesus Christ? I want that for you. I do. But Christ wants it even more. Lord, I pray for every person in this room who has hands upturned. They're longing to dwell in your love. We don't always know how, and we're forgetful creatures. One day it won't even be something we think about. It'll just happen, and that will be the true gift of heaven. Uh, But today we come to you humbly and say, Lord... I have often forgotten you. And I have felt the consequences. I want to be more intimately connected to you. I want to believe your words. I want to submit to your commands. I want to enjoy the fruitful life you desire, not the joyful or productive, the addicted or the workaholic life I might chase on my own. Would you help me the rest of this day to live in you? And from this day forward, Lord, each time you remind me of you, I promise to turn to you as best I can, open myself to you, submit anew, and enjoy your love. 
May you do that for each of us, Lord Jesus Christ, in a way we cannot do ourselves. Holy Spirit, do that for us. Fill us with your love in a way that we can't describe, in a way that we we couldn't put fully into words, but in a way that becomes the greatest gift we have and the greatest gift we give. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go live in Christ.